Let's take our Bibles this morning and let's not worry about the council regulations and let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And follow along as we read the last of the seven letters sent by Christ to the churches in the various areas. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we read this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cot or whole, cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let me take a moment to pray again before we go any further. Lord, I am in so desperate need of your help this morning. I, I'm not sure if I can think of another time in the 17 or 18 years of my preaching life where I have felt such a great burden and such an enormous task ahead. And thank you for the church that you've Put together here in this area. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their graciousness and patience with me. Uh, and Lord, I pray that today you would reveal yourself in ways that can only be attested to that which is supernatural. I pray that you would revive us. I pray that you would revive me in greater measures. Uh, that as we read and as we discuss and as we share the truths found in this passage, that it, was pen- it would penetrate to our hearts. I don't quite know what you'll do, but I expect you to do great things because you are a great God. And uh, the time has been spent in your study. The time has been spent uh, in prayer. The time has been spent in your word. And I say with the psalmist, oh, Lord, it is now time for you to work. Uh, I see Elijah on Mount Carmel on that day as he prepared the bullock, as he built the altars, uh, as he poured all the water on the sacrifice that day. And I feel like that's all been done. But now the fire of God must fall, and that is a work that only you can do. And so I pray that the fire of God would fall in our midst, and that it would consume all our dross, and that it would uh, issue, and the consequence and result of such 
would be that you would have a pure and undefiled church, that we would be before you holy and blameless, that any any aspect of lukewarmness or apathy or indifference or complacency would be burned up, that we would be on fire, boiling hot for you. Oh, Lord, let Laodicea not be our epitaph, we pray. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray for blessing and strength in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at our PowerPoint slide this morning for our uh, final introduction, we've been looking at, as you know, the letters to the seven churches. We've already looked at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and today in our two parts we're going to look at Laodicea. And uh, as we've mentioned before, it's the Apostle John who is given this vision while he is banished to the Isle of Patmos and he writes now to the final church in that circuit, which is Laodicea. And uh, to give us uh, a little bit of a, a, an introduction to who we're talking about, we know that the angel of the church in Laodicea is in fact the leadership of the church. We've mentioned that each time and uh, I think we know that now. We'll talk some more about who that is. And this particular assembly is mentioned by name both here in the book of Revelation and in Colossians. And uh, Lucas, in his continuation of Colossians, is going to be dealing with uh, this particular uh, church, at least in a little way, when he gets to chapter 4. It's believed by many that Paul's fellow labourer, Epaphras, who is found in 4 verse 13, founded the church in Laodicea. And uh, so that's an interesting fact to know. Uh, But the Apostle Paul had never been there. And, uh, but John obviously had direct connection with this church. The city of Laodicea, some very interesting facts come about as you read this letter and they're absolutely poignant to the whole matter. It was established by Antiochus II, the Greek king, between 264 and 261 BC. Antiochus named the city after his wife, Laodicea. Laodicea was located about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 11 miles from Colossae, which are the other churches that we have considered. Laodicea was strategically located at the junction of two important roads, making it a very important centre for commercial and business. The city was famous, please note this because it becomes important later, the city was famous for the black soft wool it produced. The wool was made into clothes and woven into carpet, which both were much sought after. As well as that, Laodicea was also known for the Phrygian powder, which was produced from a rock in the city when mixed with oil and then applied to the eyes and ears for comfort and for cleansing, otherwise called eye salve. The city of Laodicea was in the vicinity of the temple of Menkaru and a renowned school of medicine. Two famous medical teachers from this school, Zeuxis and Alexander Philalethus, appear on their coins. Laodicea was ex- exceedingly wealthy, and this is demonstrated in AD 60, when the entire city was levelled by an earthquake. Instead of requesting funds from Rome, the Laodiceans took it upon themselves to rebuild the city from their own coffers. This is most unusual for a city in the Roman Empire. In fact, history records for us that when the Roman Empire sent letters uh, saying that we will send money, they sent letters back saying, no, thank you, we'll take care of it. Very, very unusual. Laodicea was also famous for its banking operations. It was the Fort Knox of the area, of that region. Talk about the spiritual leadership for just a quick moment. Church history records that the pastor or the angel of the church at this time was the man by the name of Archippus, who was the son of Philemon. 
Okay, and you can read about him in chapter 1, verse 2. Archippus had been encouraged by Paul some 30 years earlier to be diligent in fulfilling his ministry, found in Colossians 4 and verse 17. Interesting when you put connections together in the Bible, isn't it? So this morning, Laodicea, we are looking at the lukewarm church. And uh, not that I need any further introduction, I have plenty in front of me. Let me just say to us that this is a mammoth message and a mammoth letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Laodicea. I'm going to jump right in because there's much to cover and we're going to have a break and come back. So I just want to give us maximum time with concentration and so forth. So first of all, as we look in the text in chapter 3 and verse 14, we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. First and foremost this morning, I would have us come to understand the characteristics of Christ. The characteristics of Christ. We've seen this in other letters and we're going to see it again today. The Lord Jesus commences this letter before us to the church at Laodicea by describing himself in three distinct and striking ways. Notice firstly, his title number one, the Amen. The Amen. A word we use most often at the end of prayers that doesn't really mean a whole lot today for us unless we're careful about how we use it. But the word Amen or Amen is a transliteration from the Hebrew And it means to be firm, to be steady or trustworthy. In the Old Testament, this word was often used at the end of a sentence as an adverb, meaning truly or certainly. It was confirmation of the preceding words and invoked their fulfillment. Let it be so. Let it be so. When we get to the New Testament, amen, though similar, takes on a different form and it indicates affirmation. Or verification of a truth. Jesus often used the Greek equivalent of verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen. Same concept. And in referring to himself not as amen, but as the amen, there are two very important truths contained within this title. First of all, I believe that it is a title that relates to his divine nature or his deity. And then secondly, I believe it speaks of his immutability or his changelessness. And I want to explain how that works for just a moment. His divine nature, firstly, is seen in this title of the Amen, because in the Old Testament, the title, the Amen, was exclusively used for God, as we see in Isaiah 65 verse 16. And so to me, it is clear that when the Lord Jesus says, I am the Amen, he is saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. But I think secondly that, and probably even more so, the point that he is wanting to make is that he is immutable. He is changeless, meaning that he is firm and consistent and faithful. He is the Amen. He's the faithful one. And what a joy for us as believers to know that as a reality. It seems to me that this title is here included in this letter to ensure the church at Laodicea that they understand that what Christ sees about them is true and accurate. That his judgment and the things that he has said need to be taken heed of because they are amen. They are true and they are to be trusted. 
And so I believe he opens the letter this way to inform them of his divine nature and of his changelessness and the fact that what he says is true. But then title number two we see here in this text is the words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness. Title number two, the faithful and true witness. Here Jesus develops the concept contained within the title Amen. As the faithful and true witness, he is dependable. And what he says is dependable. And his judgment of the condition of the church is just and it is right. In other words, we might say, Christ's diagnosis of this church was not diluted. It was not distorted. It was not double-tongued. It was true and accurate, just like his nature as the Amen. Then title number three we see here, the beginning of God's creation. This particular title, along with some ambiguous and misleading English translation, has given rise to what I believe many heretical teachings. The Greek word used here does not imply that Jesus was the first of God's creation, as the Arians and Unitarians assert, but rather that he was the beginning of crea- the beginner of creation and its original instrument. In other words, what we're saying is that Jesus is not here saying that he was the first person God created, but rather that he himself is the source or origin of creation. This truth is in perfect alignment with a church nearby that was written in Colossae and Colossians 1.15 verse uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, which Lucas has taught us on recently. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Praise God. He is the beginner of creation, not the beginning of creation. G. Campbell Morgan, in reference to Christ as the creator and its relevance at this juncture, writes this beautiful prose. He says, approaching the church at Laodicea, he comes as the one whose rank is infinitely beyond that of priest, prophet or king. He speaks with the authority of cause and creation. Wherever the eye rests, whatever the mind is conscious of, is as to first cause the work of Christ. His footprints may be tracked through all creation and every blush of beauty reveals the touch of his finger. There are no flowers but have in them witness to him, no marvellous and majestic landscape entrancing the vision of men but that sings the solemn anthem of his power and his beauty. In all the precision of created things, the rolling seasons, the dawn of day and the westering of the sun, in the emergence of the spring from its garment of winter, its procedure into the splendor of summer, and its gorgeous robing into autumnal glory, is to be discovered the power of the Christ. Thus coming to a church conceited because of its wealth and independence, he sublimely announces his wealth and his independence. Adam Clark writes, By his titles here, He prepares for them the humiliating and awful truths which he is about to declare and the authority on which the declaration is founded. And so we see the characteristics of Christ. But I want you to see secondly with me, and to be honest, this is the remainder of our message this morning, 
the complaints of Christ. The complaints of Christ. Look at what it says in our text. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I enter this point with great trepidation. I enter it with great emotion over my own soul, over my own distance from the Lord so often. And so anything that you hear me say today, if it sounds like it is pointed at you, please uh, don't take that for a moment as being the case. It's pointed at this preacher. It's pointed at this heart and this soul because all night long I have wrestled with this reality, the complaints of Christ perhaps in my own heart and soul. And so with that in mind, I want you to note something before we look at anything else. There is no commendation given to this church. In previous letters, mostly we see that the Lord Jesus brings a word of encouragement to the assembly before he outlines his concerns, but not so at Laodicea. Christ's complaints regarding this church can be organized into three distinct areas, and each of them form a very real downward progression, or perhaps we should say regression. And so that's what I want to look at, these three Distinct areas. The first, and I'll give you all three. The first is lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent. Lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent. And then secondly, we see they are conceited, proud, and self-sufficient. Conceited, proud, and self-sufficient. And then thirdly and finally, we see that they are undiscerning, unaware and unconcerned. They're lukewarm, apathetic and indifferent. First of all, let's look at that. In Revelation 3 and verse 15, we're told you are neither cold nor hot. It is interesting to note that Jesus here is employing a real and vibrant picture that was understood by all of those who were living in Laodicea. And may I say, I never knew this until I studied this again. I've preached from this text many times over the years, but I never saw this before. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. To us, that may conjure up all kinds of images, but to these people, it meant something very particular. See, one of the noted historical problems in the city of Laodicea was poor water supply. Their main water came on a six-mile aqueduct from the hot springs of Hierapolis. Because the water came from hot springs and took some time to reach the city, it arrived unappetizingly foul, dirty and tepid. It was not unusual for citizens of Laodicea to vomit as a result of drinking the water that was available in their city. In fact, historically, some died. The picture of lukewarmness would have been immediately understood because of the water that the Christians drank every single day. What Jesus was saying that we don't see 
ourselves here in the text because we're not living in Laodicea. Jesus was saying, just like the water that you drink, which is disgustingly lukewarm, you too are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. In this spiritual analogy, Jesus speaks of their indifference and their apathy towards himself and the matters of Christian religion. The words used here to describe this church indicate a lack of feeling, a lack of zeal and a lack of interest. Were they cold, they would be opposed to Christ and walking in active rebellion towards him. Were they hot, they would be fervent and proactive in their walk with Christ. But neither is true. They were untouched by the spiritual life. The relationship with Christ was blasé, it was stagnant and it was uninteresting. The zest and vibrancy of Christianity had cooled, but not to the point of non-existence but to a place of carelessness. One commentator describes their predicament as neither acting hostile towards Christ nor zealous for him. You see, lukewarmness, apathy and indifference issue from a heart that operates with a worship disorder. This here is a worship disorder. And so we ask the question, and it's a good question to ask, what happened to Laodicea? What happened to this church, to this assembly, to this group of people called out from the world and called unto Christ? What happened to them? They were fervent at one point. What happened? Well, like their aqueducts, the Christians had distanced themselves from the source of water. The channels had become dirty and that fervent, boiling hot love which ensured vibrancy and spiritual hygiene had been mixed with worldliness and self-sufficiency. In fact, John Stott writes this powerfully. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th then, 20th century, now 21st, Church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin deep religiosity which is so widespread amongst us today. Our Christianity is both flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion, John Stott says. You see, Laodicea is the church that makes God sick. Their nauseating form of Christianity is repudiated by Jesus Christ. But lest we be too violently offensive against Laodicea, let us remember that there is a tendency in all believers to cool off. Though we may never again be cold as the world is without Christ, it is our inclination to move away from the hot springs Found in Christ. In developing this thought some more, Alexander McLaren, a man who I have great respect for, commentator of yesteryear, writes this. Take a bar of iron out of the furnace on a winter day and lay it down in the air and there is nothing more wanted. Leave it there and very soon the white heat will change into livid dullness and then there will come a scale over it 
and in a short time it will be as cold as the frosty atmosphere around it. And so there is always a refrigerating process acting upon us, which needs to be counteracted by continual contact with the fiery furnace of spiritual warmth, or else we are cooled down to the degree of cold around us. How easy it is for the Christian to move away from the furnace or the hot springs. How quickly our fiery love turns to apathetic lukewarmness. And again, I say to you this morning, I am speaking to me first. My own heart, my own tendency to cooling off. Francis Chan wrote a book entitled Crazy Love. In it is a very helpful list of 18 traits that he penned that he associated with the lukewarm Christian. I know I have limited time, but I'm going to include all 18 here by way of a discussion or point for you to consider. You get a copy of these notes and read them yourself. I just want to read these 18 traits. He's called it the 18 traits of the lukewarm Christian. Number one, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It is what is expected of them, what they believe good Christians do, and so they go. Number two, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it is easy and safe to give, they do so. Number three, Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in both at church and outside of church. They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts and lives. Number four. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish or chasten them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Number five, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Number six, lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers or friends. They do not want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Number seven, lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they are nowhere as horrible as the guy down the street. Number eight. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, their money and their thoughts, but isn't allowed to control their lives. Number nine. Lukewarm people love God. But they do not love him with their heart, with all their heart, soul and strength. They would be quick to assure you that they try to love God that much. But that sort of total devotion isn't really possible to the average person. It's only for pastors and missionaries and radicals. Number 10. 
Number 10. Lukewarm people love others but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Their love of others is typically focused on those who love them in return, like family, friends and other people they know and connect with. There is little love left over for those who cannot love them back, much less for those who intentionally slight them, whose kids are better athletes than theirs, or with whom conversations are awkward or uncomfortable. Their love is highly conditional and very selective and generally comes with strings attached. Number 11. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they will go or how much time, money and energy they are willing to give. Number 12. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than, in, than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do lists, this week's schedule and next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life to come. Regarding this, C.S. Lewis wrote, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Number 13, lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. They are quick to point out, Jesus never said money is the root of all evil, only that the love of money is. Untold numbers of lukewarm people feel called to minister to the rich. Very few feel called to minister to the poor. Number 14, lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. Number 15. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. This focus on safe living keeps them from sacrificing and risking for God. Number 16. Lukewarm people feel secure because they attend church, made a profession of faith at age 12, were baptised, come from a Christian family, vote Republican or live in America. Just as the prophets in the Old Testament warned Israel that they were not safe just because they lived in the land of Israel, so we are not safe just because we wear the label Christian or because some people persist in calling us a Christian nation. Number 17. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full and for the most part they're in good health. The truth is their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Number 18, lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average. But besides that, they really aren't very different from your typical unbeliever. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness, but they couldn't be more wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted. Just those 18, let alone a whole bunch of other ones that came to my mind as I thought about my own lukewarm heart. Some of you will be familiar with Ray Comfort's ministry in America. And in his typically humorous and satirical style, he lists the songs of the lukewarm church. Blessed be the tie that doesn't cramp my style. Pillow of ages fluffed for me. I surrender some. I'm fairly certain that my Redeemer lives. 
Sit up, sit up for Jesus. Take my life and let me be. What an acquaintance we have in Jesus. Where he leads me, I'll consider following. He's quite a bit to me. Oh, how I like Jesus. Fill my spoon, Lord. It is my secret what God can do. Brethren, have we become lukewarm? Have we lost sight of our Saviour? Have we ceased to draw directly from the hot springs? Have we distanced ourselves from the source of life and holiness? Are we operating with mediocre, half-hearted, tepid and apathetic attitude towards him and towards eternal matters? You know, God rebuked Isaiah in chapter 29 and 13. He said, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is merely a commandment taught by men. We need God to rescue us from ourselves. We need God to rescue us from the tendency that we have to cool off in our spiritual life. And that was just the first complaint. Let's go to the second. The second complaint that I mentioned is that they were conceited, proud and self-sufficient. Being lukewarm, apathetic and indifferent towards Christ was not the only complaint that Jesus raised against this church. Now he says, you are conceited, you are proud, and you are self-sufficient. And this is how we see it in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The reality is that when coolness sets into the life of a Christian, it will not be very long before pride and self-sufficiency reign within our hearts. It's not very long in this pastor's heart when I start to cool off towards the things of God that suddenly I think more highly of myself than I ought to. Suddenly I I become proud and self-conceited and I believe that I'm something that I'm not. And the problem we have here secondly with this church that Jesus had with this church is that it lacked a sense of spiritual poverty. They thought they were something when in actual fact they were nothing. David Guzik says, they looked at their spiritual condition and said, rich. They looked again and said, wealthy. They looked a third time and said, we need nothing. The Laodiceans put their trust in material prosperity, in outward luxury and in physical health. They felt that they needed nothing. This loss of a sense of dependence can be likened to the drowsiness that besets a freezing man, which proves finally fatal. Vance Havner writes, The cause of Christ has been hurt more by Sunday morning benchwarmers who pretend to love Christ, who call him Lord but do not do his commands, than by all the publicans and sinners. From the original language in this text, we cannot uh, work out fully whether what this particular church was inferring was that they had great physical wealth or spiritual wealth or both. In either case, they demonstrated an attitude of pride and self-sufficiency. I have this. 
And we know, don't we, that when the church moves away from total dependency upon Christ, it invokes the wrath and judgment of God. The acquisition of riches and wealth, whether spiritual or physical, often result in a lack of dependence and faith in God. The most dangerous thing that can happen to a Christian, the most dangerous thing that can ever happen to a church is that we become either rich in finance physically or rich in spirituality. Because the dangerous thing there is that we start to believe we're something when we're not. A great danger exists. But when we are spiritually bankrupt and we know that we don't have power of our own and we have to be dependent, we're in a wonderful, wonderful place. But many of us find that place too hard and long for the place of wealth and riches, both physically and spiritually. How careful God's church must be to exercise dependence when the coffers are full as well as when they're empty. How essential it is for us to constantly affirm the fact that all good things come from above and this must translate into a song of continued dependence, praise and thanksgiving towards God. If we move away from that, we will move into the place of I am rich, I am wealthy, I have need of nothing. And so Christ's complaint, secondly, was that they were conceited proud and self-sufficient and then thirdly his third complaint is that they were undiscerning unaware and unconcerned in verse 17 he says not realizing that you are wretched pitiable poor blind and naked i don't know if i can say this for sure but I think that perhaps the saddest reality in the life of this church at Laodicea is their complete ignorance of their miserable plight. They believe that all is well and yet swift judgment looms. They think everything is going fine. This is just, this is just hunky-dory. This is just dandy. Everything is perfectly good. Oh, it's all going well. And in actual fact, Jesus says, you are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind and you are naked. How easy it is for the Christian and the church as a whole to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And how critical it is that both the Christian and the church seek the perspective of Christ. I need to know what Christ thinks. I cannot trust my heart. I think I'm doing well. My heart lies constantly. It is a deceiver. You know, the greatest problem in the world is not the devil. The greatest problem is not the world. The greatest problem is me. I'm the greatest problem and you're the greatest problem to your own spiritual life because we deceive ourselves and our heart lies to us and we believe it. And so it's absolutely essential that we get Christ's perspective on us and see it as Christ sees it. And here he gives five adjectives to describe the plight of this church. He says you are wretched, meaning that they are suffering from spiritual misery and affliction. This was not a happy church. He says you're wretched. And then secondly, he says you're miserable, which is an even greater word, meaning that you are worthy of pity of the nations. Your plight incites compassion from others. So downcast and miserable and depressed are you that others look upon and say, we pity you. Can you imagine? The Christian church, the world says, we pity you. Instead of saying, what have you got? 
Where's the joy? That joy you've got. I want that. What's that hope that you've got? Instead of that, they're saying, poor church, poor people, we pity you. Then he says, thirdly, you are poor. This is a very strong word. It means literally you are destitute like a beggar on the side of a road. You are in great distress. You seem to be rich, but in actuality, you are desperately helpless. Poor. He says, fourthly, you are blind. This means opaque, unable to see clearly as though enveloped with smoke. It's as though all of your thinking and all that you see is totally without clarity. It's blinding. And then he says, number five, you are naked. He says, you are stripped of moral clothing. Not in the absolute sense in that you are not saved, but in the temporal relational sense that your life is not clad with the righteousness practically that should be part of your Christian experience. It's as though you are spiritually wandering around in the nude, naked. That's the picture here, spiritually. You're without covering, not, not in a righteousness sense, but in a practical sense. Christ reveals the real picture of his church. Laodicea says, I am rich. Jesus says, Thou art poor. The church says, I'm increased with goods. Christ says, Thou hast nothing. They say, I have need of nothing. The Lord says, Thou art pitiable, blind, and naked. How much of a contrast there is between how Laodicea see themselves. And how the Lord Jesus sees them. Have we, church, family, friends, have we, like the Laodiceans, fooled ourselves into thinking all is well? When in actual fact we are also destitute and in desperate need of change. Christ's complaints. Serious, soul-searching. And my encouragement for us this morning is that as we pause and as we take a break at this juncture, as we go and have some coffee, as we have our little meeting, as we go for some lunch, and as we come back, to look at what this all means for the church and some wonderful truths yet to come. Can I encourage us to ask the question, am I apathetic? Am I lukewarm? Do those 18 or other aspects of my uh, apathy demonstrate? Are they showing in me the reality that this is true? I have cooled off. Is it true that I've become conceited and proud and self-sufficient? Am I undiscerning and unaware and unconcerned for my spiritual well-being at this moment? I want to tell you from the depths of my heart, as the shepherd called here to lead you, that I'm concerned for us. Not in particular people, but just concerned for us in this culture and in this world that we live and with our own hearts that are so uh, inclined to do that which is wrong and move away. I'm concerned for us that we would take the time necessary today and the inventory of our own hearts to know Am I lukewarm? Am I like that spring that started out hot over here, but the aqueducts filled with dirt and rubbish have come up here and that's what the Lord tastes of my Christian experience? 
makes him want to be sick. It's a devastating thought and it uh, certainly sent me to my knees on many occasions in the last 24 hours. And so we'll pause a while, we'll sing a final hymn, we'll take some time to fellowship some more with one another and come back in a little while to discuss the remainder. Father, I don't know precisely what I've even said this morning. Uh, I'm thankful for your strength and enablement and uh, Lord, I'm I'm in awe of uh, your working in me and through me and I just pray that uh, all of these things that have been said would be helpful and not hurtful. I pray that they would bring us to a place of true, sincere, personal meditation and taking inventory of our heart and finding out where we are at individually. And and not one of us can look at another person and know where the heart is at. And so it's personal. It's between us and yourself. I pray that we wouldn't just push this away. I pray that we wouldn't just allow our hearts and its tendency to just say, that really wasn't for me. That really isn't all that important. I'm not concerned about that. Lord, don't let us do that. And Lord, as we come back in a little while after lunch and a meeting and various other things, I pray you'd cause our attention to be given to the remainder of this text, which is as powerful, if not more powerful, than that which we've already considered. And the way out of this place of pride, the way out of this place of complacency, We'll see in our next time and and as we consider the fact that the Lord Jesus stands at the door and knocks and knocks and knocks. Lord, help us today to open that door. Help us today to hear his voice pleading with us that we might re-enter the place of great fellowship and sup with him and enjoy the sweet communion that is greater than anything else in this life. Help us, we pray. Thank you for this time and for the attention of your people in Jesus' name. Amen.